right. So either all of you brought your own Bibles or you didn't take me seriously. So will two random people just jump up and grab a couple Bibles and uh, raise your hand if you still need one and somebody will bring you one. Uh, you know, whenever Dan preaches, he always has all these great stories and this deep wisdom and he keeps everybody entertained and, and laughing. And then I have to get up here and preach and I go, how do I compete with that? Uh, so I'm just going to tell four stories from the Bible because who of you is going to say that the Bible is boring? Exactly. Nobody. So we will be in the Bibles a lot today. I have to tell you before we get going, um, I have a confession. So you guys are going to hear my confession and um, hopefully um, some of you will go, yeah, me too. I'm that way sometimes. This week I've met a lot of new people. And whenever you meet someone new, you know, they say, oh, well, what do you do? And I always say, well, I'm a, I'm a middle school teacher. And they're like, oh, that's so great. You know, what subjects do you teach? And I go, Bible. And uh, they'll go, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> you know, so kind of on both sides, I, you know, I'm, I'm excited to talk about the fact that I'm a middle school teacher. And then uh, they ask me what I teach, and I get a little bit embarrassed because I have to say, I don't I teach the Bible. And they kind of respond accordingly, go, oh, that's, that's really interesting. And, and I know what's going on. In my mind, as soon as I tell them that I teach the Bible, they've decided who, what kind of person I am, right? And they know that too, which is why they don't follow up with, you know, in anything other than that's interesting or, oh, how brave of you to teach middle schoolers. <laughs> you know, it's never about what I teach. It's always about the fact that I teach middle schoolers. And so I've, I've found myself kind of wrestling with this. Why am I embarrassed? I'm not embarrassed about my faith. I'm not embarrassed to share my faith. Um, I believe in the Bible. I believe the Bible is God's word. There's nothing, I don't have any lack of confidence in that. So why am I so embarrassed about this kind of caricature of, of Christianity that's often portrayed um, that people have? Um, and I think it's because of that response. It's because of the response that I get when I tell people I'm a Bible teacher is, oh, that's interesting. And the response that I want is, oh, you can help me. Right? Because ultimately, I really do feel like I... I want to be helpful to people who are searching, who want to know, who have questions about why Christians act this way or that way, or why the Bible says this or that. I have this desire in me to help people, and, and, I, and I want the fact that I'm a Bible teacher to elicit that response, but it doesn't come often. Usually it's just, that's interesting. And all I want to do is help. In the Old Testament, this idea of help um, comes to us when, when God creates Adam and Eve. God looks out and says, Adam and Eve, uh, he sees Adam and he says, you know, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper or a helpmate suitable for him. And the interesting part about that word in the Hebrew, helpmate or, or, or helper, is it means something totally different than we often think of. You see, when we often think of somebody who's um, helping, we, we often think of somebody who maybe is a little bit subordinate, right? When we think of, you know, the help. Right? If you've read the book or, or seen the movie, right? that's kind of this caricature of, of the help are people who, who are below us, who serve us. Right? Those of you who watch Downton Abbey, maybe, or those of you who are forced to watch it every once in a while, um, you know who you are. Uh, you know, they call those servants the help for a reason, and it's meant to kind of separate this kind of class system. And this has often been um, a word that we use to separate um, subordinate from the dominant authorities. But in the Bible, that's not how it's used. The word helper or helpmate in Genesis that God uses when God creates Eve is the same word in the Hebrew that's used when God says, I will be your helper. 
It's the same word used time and time again throughout Scripture for God helping us. And that's what I want to be. When somebody, when somebody sees me and hears that I'm a Bible teacher, I don't want them to have this preconceived notion of, of who I am. I want them to say, oh, that's somebody. He, he believes in the Bible. That means he can help me. And it doesn't matter what it is, I want to be helpful. And so today, as we look at um, the story and we wrap up our series in Ruth, I want to look at some ways that I think uh, we can start changing the perception of, of, of what it means to be a Christian to one that is immediately going to elicit the, oh, you can help me, rather than a, oh, that's interesting, and then a change of the subject. So for the last few weeks, we've been journeying uh, together with Ruth and Naomi, and I think they are honestly the true heroes of the story. I mean, Boaz, it's really easy to set up as the hero because, you know, obviously he redeems them. He pays this great price for them. Um, but I think... Ruth and Naomi better represent the Christ figure in this story. Um, After all, it is Jesus himself who comes down to earth. He challenges the authorities of the day, and with tenacity, he persists against the injustices that are being done so that justice is served and we all find restoration. We talk a lot about names in this series, what Naomi means, what her son's name means, what her her husband's name means, what Ruth means, and all this kind of stuff. And we talk about what our name, restoration, means. And restoration is is the process of restoring something or bringing something back to its original condition. And when we talk about this, we talk about this as a people that have been restored, not just of this church of restoration that meets in the Arvada Center on Sundays, but as a people of God in the kingdom that have been restored and been restored for a purpose. And I think this is what Christ does for us. Christ obviously, you know, redeems us with a great price, and we celebrate that. We celebrated that last week with baptism, and we talked about it in the message. But Christ also restores us and enables us to be a people of restoration. And now Boaz is a good example of this because he, he does act as a restored person. He sees that he has a responsibility to redeem Ruth um, who has been widowed and, and, and therefore also care for Naomi. Um, but he's simply just doing what he's supposed to do. He's simply just living as he's supposed to live. It's Naomi and Ruth, on the other hand, who are persistent. They persist and they keep going and they keep fighting for what is theirs. It's, it's, it's Tamar and Rahab before them, the ancestors of Naomi and Ruth, who have persisted long before that and who start this story of redemption that we find ourselves in, now living in restoration. Without the persistence of these women who were widowed, marginalized, called all sorts of names, we wouldn't be where we are right now. And I think that's the way it is with Christ. He was called a liar. He was called possessed. He was called a heretic. And yet, without this despised man, we don't find redemption. So there's a difference in the, in the concepts of redemption and restoration. They're two um, different things, although they are very closely aligned. Redemption is a type of transaction. Right? It's, it's something that happens to us that's apart from our control. It's already done. All right? So I'll test you. I'll say redemption. You say done. Redemption. All right? Restoration. 
uh, is the process of becoming right again, right with God, with each other, with the world, with ourselves. Um, Restoration is the process we enter into because we have been redeemed. Restoration is something we are doing. So I'll say restoration, you say doing. Restoration? So that's the difference. One has been done for us. One is that we continue to do. If you grew up Methodist, um, you might know this is the difference between salvation and sanctification. Right? Salvation is this work that Christ does for us. Self, uh, sanctification, on the other hand, is that working out your salvation with fear and trembling. Right? It's, 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 it's taking what Christ has done for us, and because we're grateful for what Christ has done for us, we begin to act accordingly. In these stories that we're going to talk about today, um, restoration is not just some fulfillment. It's not some promise that, that God just bestows on them and it's already done. It's something that is being worked very hard for. It's persisting. It's tenaciousness. The main thing here is that restoration is lived out in persistence against the powers and the authorities that oppose justice. They are things that are supposed to be in this world, the things that are supposed to be, and people who are set up to make those things that way. And restoration in these particular stories is going to be seen as these four women who are not getting the justice, who are not getting the right thing, and so fight in order to have it. So we'll look at these stories, and we'll look at them backwards. We're actually going to start with what Jesus says, and then we'll work our way all the way back through the line to see how these women that inevitably come and set up the story of Ruth that we've been studying and have persisted. So it's important to note, as we look at these stories uh, in the Old Testament, specifically regarding women, is they're often fairly sad. Um, we often look at these stories and go, how could this ever happen? And it's important to know that um, sad stories don't always have happy endings. They do have new beginnings. And, and there's a difference here, and maybe it's only a difference in my mind, but I've always thought that a happy ending means you have to be happy for all the junk and stuff that you've gone through, all the hard things in your life. Well, I'm so glad I went through that so I could be here. Whereas a new beginning allows us to still grieve the pain that we went through. It allows us to acknowledge the hurt that brought us to where we are. And yet we can set that where it is, call it what it is, and then move on to persisting in a new beginning. And I think that is what these women show us. We become different. We're forever changed, forever moving forward. Go ahead and open uh, your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Um, we're going to start in verse 1 and go through uh, verse 8. Um, these first couple will be on the screen in case you didn't, still didn't grab a Bible, um, but there are still some Bibles back there if you, if you get lost later on and want to follow along. In Luke 18, we have uh, this popular Jewish character. Um, in the Hebrew writings, there is this persistent widow, and this is, this is a literary character. This is a character that they tell in stories all the time, and the purpose of this character is uh, to, to teach a point about what it means to work hard, to persist um, specifically um, for the rights of those who are struggling. So this is Jesus. Um, chapter 18, starting in verse 1, uh, says this, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, 
Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so she eventually won't come and attack me. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust judge says. And will, God, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, a little background for you about this, this character, this popular character of the persistent widow. Um, it's often emphasized or it's often used to emphasize the mandate by God to take care of the widows. If you look throughout the Old Testament, God's always saying, take care of the widow, take care of the orphan, take care of the traveler, the person who's, who's wandering through. And things have been set up, and God has said, you have to take care of these people because the system is not set up to take care of them. So you have to do it. So this is one of the ways that they teach um, an application to Deuteronomy 25, which Ryan talked about last week, um, where, you know, if, if, if a widow, if, 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 a, if a wife lost her husband, she was to marry the brother-in-law so she can keep the family uh, line going. And if the brother-in-law refused his duties, then she got to, uh, you know, take off his sandal and spit in his face and say, this is the family of the unsandaled. Um, and Ryan didn't go into too much detail about the euphemism there, so I won't either. Um, uh, but these stories were, were, were designed to encourage um, the persistence of widows, to say, no, like, you have these rights You're, that aren't being met. Keep going, keep going. The same is true in this story that we just read. In fact, the, the Greek text seems to say something a little different than, than our English translation leads us to believe. And I looked at a bunch of different English translations, and they all kind of say the same thing, and they miss the point slightly. You see, in, in verse 5, in the English translation, um, it says, uh, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice and see, and so that she won't eventually come and attack me. Now, there's a word in there that the judge uses to describe the widow, um, which I bet um, many of us that are male kind of gloss over as, okay, whatever. But I bet many of you women in here um, see this word and you, you think of another word. So, just out of curiosity, you can shout out ladies in the, in the room. When you see the word bother, what is other word comes to mind? Nag, right? Stop nagging me, right? This is the word that the judge uses to describe this word. This widow is nagging. She's pestering. She's so annoying. Why won't she just stop? Now, show of hand, men's. How, have you, how many of you men in here saw bothered and thought nagged? Ha <laughs> ha! I win. Um, so, nag has a very negative connotation, and uh, I, I mean, I, I mean, would any woman disagree? So, nagging is used in, in this in this way, in this bothering way that the, that the English writers have translated, and it paints an unfair caricature of what it means to be a persistent woman. Right? There is a profound difference in being a persistent woman and being a nag. We know this, first of all, because of what Jesus says. He says, and the Lord said, this is verse uh, 6, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice 
and quickly. So first off, Jesus calls the judge unjust. So I think it's safe to say that if somebody's unjust, we don't need to take vocabulary lessons from them. Second, through Jesus' line of rhetorical questions, he's making a point. He's encouraging persistence. He's encouraging persistence in the cases of taking the injustices that we experience to God. So there's nothing negative about the widow here. She's acting in contrast to the judge. She is acting righteously. In fact, when the judge states that violence may be done to him, um, this is actually a concept that we are familiar with. It's just phrased differently in this story than what we normally see. 1 Corinthians 9.27, I'll throw this up on the screen, is, is, is a verse that maybe many of you are familiar with. This is Paul. No, I strike a blow to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. The word um, that's used to, I strike a blow to my body, that, that we get that metaphor, I strike a blow, I discipline myself, I work hard for this, is the same word here that the judge uses when he says the lady might do violence to me. So the word is not one of like violence or, you know, she's going to do this or that um, or some kind of negative connotation. Instead, it's one of teaching, one of rebuking, one of training, one of discipline, one of doing the right thing. Because if this judge knows if he doesn't do the right thing, he will be shamed. He will be disgraced. If he keeps resisting against this widow, um, it's going to be a bad thing. So the widow here is not nagging. She's not bothering. She's schooling the judge on what it means to do his job, what it means to do his job of, of creating justice in this world. So when you think um, of women in the Bible being persistent, don't make the same mistake um, that this, uh, this translation leads us to believe. Instead, see these women as heroes for they are heroes. They're standing up for a justice that belonged to them in the first place. So let's, let's take a look. We're going to take a look at four of these types of women um, that kind of make up our story of Ruth. And in order to show you how this all works, I would like you to turn backwards a little bit to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is perhaps the most generous text in the whole scripture um, in its regard to women. You see, genealogies, genealogies always cite fatherhood. So the fact that women are even mentioned in genealogies is significant. It should stand out to us. Clearly, they're mentioned here because they're, um, they're, they're important. Right? They're mentioned in a place where usually only men are. Not only that, but these particular women were despised, they were denied justice, and they were most likely called some terrible names. And yet... What we see in Matthew's genealogy is they bring us the Christ child. So Matthew chapter 1, we'll just go to verse 6 because you'll, you'll kind of get the point. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That's our first one. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amandab. Amandab, the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon, I guess. Um, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. That's the second one. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. 
Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of King David. Now, the only lady not mentioned in there that we'll be talking about today um, is Naomi, and we know that Naomi and Ruth um, walked hand in hand together. But we know that Jesus uh, comes from the line of King David, and it seems important to Matthew to make sure that we understand that these women who are present in this genealogies um, have something to teach us. So we're going to talk about them in reverse order. We're going to go Ruth, Naomi, Rahab, Tamar. So now it's your turn. You've been listening to Ruth for the last four weeks. You should be an expert on this. So you're going to choose a partner, and I'm going to give you 30 seconds. And one person needs to tell the partner everything they can possibly remember about Ruth. Just Ruth, the character of Ruth. All right, then we're going to switch. And the other partner is going to have 15 seconds to tell them everything that they just said about Ruth and anything that they may have left out. All right, so everybody pick a partner. Everybody decide which partner is going to start with the 30 seconds. On your mark, get set. 30 seconds, go. time. All right. Now the next partner has 15 seconds to say everything that they know or they just heard plus a little bit more. Go. Time. All right. That's quick. You guys are breaking the rules right now. I called time. In my classroom, you would start to lose your conduct points at this point. So just, uh, just in case you missed it, there's some, there's some important things that I want to discuss about Ruth. Uh, one, she was a Moabite. And as a Moabite, um, uh, the, uh, the men of Israel were strictly forbidden to marry a Moabite woman. And yet Naomi's sons both married Moabite women. They actually went to Moab um, when, when there was kind of a famine in Judah, and they went to Moab, and they uh, married these women, right? So this is a big no-no. And the reason why it's a big no-no is because of how the Moabite nation came about. Um, you remember the story of Abraham and Lot, right? Abraham and Lot, and uh, then you have uh, Lot and Abraham separate, and then Sodom and Gomorrah happens, and Lot's wife is turned into salt because she turned around and looked back, um, which is lesson number one of don't disobey God, I guess. Um, and what happens is Lot and his two daughters are, are on their own. They're by themselves. And the daughters are going, you know, we've been disgraced. We've been displaced. There's no, um, there's no way we're going to be able to keep living. Um, so uh, they, they get their father drunk. And they get pregnant by their father, and you have two tribes, one of them, the Moabites. And so the Moabites are seen as this detestable, disgusting, hateful, despised people. Right? I, I know that we don't, we don't hate anybody, but if we ever did have any kind of culture or type of person that we hate, this would be worse than that. 
So the fact that Ruth is a Moabite woman is disgusting. Right? It's not a good thing. Um, so she's an outsider. She's a complete outsider. She, she has no inheritance into the kingdom of God. She has no way of getting in. She has no, um, she can do whatever she wants. And in, in fact, Naomi knows this, knows that she's actually better off with her own people. So she says, go back, just go back. But Ruth has a desire. She has a desire to be a part of this kingdom of God, or at least to support Naomi. And so as an outsider, she comes to this very exclusive community with a mother-in-law who she knows is also going to be despised. So now it's time for Naomi. So you're going to switch roles. The other person will say everything that they know about Naomi in 30 seconds, and then the next partner will say everything that they said, plus anything extra that you need to say about Naomi. 30 seconds, ready, go. Time. All right, switch partners. 15 seconds, everything you know about Naomi and a little bit more. Ready, go. Time. Still talking. Man. Now we have lunch detentions. <laughs> so Naomi. Uh, Naomi is married to, you know, a prominent Jewish man. Uh, and uh, there's a famine. And so they decide to leave uh, this land, these people, and go to this land of Moab, this detestable, disgusting uh, land of Moab. <clears throat> and in the process, um, her sons, who are essentially nicknamed sick and dying, well, they get sick and they die, because um, that's how the stories work in the Old Testament. Um, people live up to their namesake. Um, and her husband also dies. So widowed, childless, Naomi has rights to nothing. And she's even outside of her own kingdom. She's outside of any family that could take her in or care for her. Uh, And so she says, you know, when she gets back finally to Israel, she says, you know, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. Because Mara means bitter. Mara means bitter. Naomi's a deserter, right? She left her place. She left her own people um, to try and, and, and live a life um, somewhere else in a place where people didn't like. So she's bitter, she, she's a deserter, um, and she's widowed and childless. Um, this is just how it works in this society. Um, so this is not something that I believe, but widowed and childless essentially equaled worthless. And that's Naomi. And so Naomi and Ruth, they come 
to, uh, to back to this place, and you know the story, hopefully from, from last week. Um, if, if you weren't here, I encourage you to read the book of Ruth. It's only four chapters long. But essentially, um, Ruth uh, becomes persistent. At, at Naomi's persistence, Ruth becomes persistent and, and seeks out Boaz. And Boaz um, is, is an ask Boaz to redeem her family, to, to, to marry, marry Ruth, um, right? Ruth proposes here um, and uh, asks to be taken in so that their family can be spared, so that their lineage can go on, so they can be restored to people in society. And so this happens. Um, Boaz, who actually didn't have to do it because there was somebody else that could have done it, um, not only that, Ruth was a Moabite woman, so I'm sure he could have gotten out of it that way since that was actually forbidden by the law. Um, but he does it anyways. Because as a person um, of the kingdom of God, I think Boaz recognized um, his place and his need to, to restore people. And so he restores um, Ruth. He gives her a child, um, which then um, restores Naomi as well. Na- now Naomi has family, has lineage, um, and is part of this family of Boaz um, for the rest of her life. So there's two women that we've, we've talked about in the last four weeks that persisted to get justice for what was being denied them. Right? Justice to have a family, justice to have land, to have standing in society, to not be cast out, to not be thrown away and discarded, but to be a part of a society where people help each other. That was a right, and they fought for that. Now the next two, Rahab. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. So we're going to go back even further. So what's happening is, you know, that Israel has, has wandered around because, um, you know, they, they, they went in and they got scared to go into the land of Canaan. So God said, guess what? You're going to wander for 40 years until all the scaredy cats die off, um, except for two. And uh, you're gonna, then you're going to go back in and you're going to take over. And so Joshua um, has, uh, uh, has the, the, the job of leading this nation in um, to, 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 to kind of go to this battle against Canaan. And this is how um, they're able to win the battle right here. Chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out these men who came to you and who entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, the men left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them, quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, know that the Lord has given this land to you, and that a great fear of you has fallen over us, so that all we who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea from when you came out of Egypt, 
and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites um, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted and everyone's courage failed because, because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all whom belong to them, and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And so it happens. Um, you know, they, the Israelites come in and they take over. And Rahab um, hangs, a, hangs a little piece of ribbon on, and all the army is told, don't invade this house, don't touch this house. And they completely obliterate everybody else except for Rahab and um, her family. Now, Rahab, she's a prostitute. Right? She's an outsider. Right? She's an outcast in society. She's someone that the Israelites should not be talking to. And yet she gives them refuge. She's a traitor. She goes against her own nation, um, her own people, in order that she might be saved. And that's because she saw the overwhelming power of God's kingdom. She saw what, what God, she says, the Lord of heaven, the Lord of earth. She's using um, Yahweh here. She's using the, the Hebrew name for God. Um, that's why you have a kind of a weird capitalization um, when it says Lord. And she's using that here because she knows that um, what's about to happen is, is this Israeli army is going to take over, and that's going to be it. And so she says, I'll save you, but in return, like, you got to save me. you got to premier me. So here's, here's this outcast woman who, who persists and says, I see what's coming. I see what's going to happen. I want to be part of that. I want to acknowledge the Lord, and I want to be a part of that. So not only does she get what she wants, but she ends up marrying into the um, Israeli nation. And eventually, from Rahab's line, we have Jesus. And then Tamar, uh, Genesis 38. This one's a little bit longer, and it's a whole lot sadder. So uh, Judah, you, you might recognize from the tribe of Judah, um, you know, or the Lion of Judah, like we sang about earlier today. Judah is, is one of the nations of Israel, one of Jacob's sons, um, and who is responsible for what becomes the 12 tribes of Judah, where um, we find a lot of our story. So this is the story of Judah and Tamar. Genesis 38. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man uh, of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and lay with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son named Onan. She gave birth still to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kizib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife from Ur, got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then 
Judah said to Onan, Lie with your brother's life and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to produce offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his, so whenever he lay with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from producing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, so he put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's house until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep. His friend Hira, the Adulamite, uh, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had, not, had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for, he, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I will send a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal in its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and he slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Enam? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So they went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, these men who lived here says there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, Bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her room, and she, as she was giving birth, one of them put his hand out. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it to his wrist and said, This one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his other brother came out. And she said, So this is how you have broken out. And, his name, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, um, and he was given the name Zerah. Zara meaning scarlet, and Perez meaning broken out. So Tamar, again, is widowed, is childless, but promised by Judah that she will eventually marry the third youngest son, should he not die, um, so that she can be restored to the family, to a rightful place in society. But Judah doesn't do it. We don't know why text doesn't tell us why Judah doesn't do this. He just decides not to for whatever reason. So she's denied what by the law of God is rightfully meant to her. 
And so she does only what she can do. Now, it's, it's hard to understand this story because there, there's one side that says, well, you know, she disguised herself as a prostitute. And yet, it's really only Judah who thinks she's a prostitute. And, and, and so it, it gets kind of confusing. If we just focus on just what the text says and not what we think it should say or what we think it should mean um, in, this, in this text, uh, we, we find something interesting. Right? Because if she was pretending to be a prostitute, why does Judah say she's more righteous than I am? He says she's more righteous than I am because she's doing the right thing. Judah had promised that um, she would be married and fulfill her, the lineage, but it hasn't happened. Um, not only that, earlier, if you remember the story of Jacob, right? Laban gives um, Rachel to be married for Jacob, only surprise, um, he marries Leah first. Why does he not realize it? Because she's wearing a veil. So, there's a custom of marriage and being veiled um, in this society. Um, and Tamar has been promised to be married to um, Judah's youngest son. Uh, and then you have the unfortunate cultural circumstance of when um, the father of the great nation um, tells you to do something, you don't, you're not really allowed to refuse. So Tamar does the right thing. She persists even though... Um, you know, it's, it seems to us to be the wrong thing. She persists and she is proclaimed righteous by Judah because of what she does, because she is willing to risk it all to get what was rightfully promised to her. And that is what starts a lineage that we then trace all the way through Jesus of four women who persisted, who were despised, rejected, thrown out by society, who even did terrible things, right? I mean, Tamar is, is, is the product of, of a Canaanite relationship, another um, you know, community that, that is forsaken by God. And it almost seems like you know, God doesn't always play by the rules. And isn't it so glad that God doesn't always play by the rules? Because even us, when we were deserving to be cast out and thrown off, um, God breaks the rules and sends Christ so that we may have redemption and be a people of restoration. So these women are the heroes in the story. Um, you know, it's not the men who get credit for doing the right thing, but the men who point, oh, this woman, surely she is righteous. Or like Jesus says about the persistent widow, surely this widow is doing the right thing. These men point to them as because justice is being served because of these women's persistence. Ruth is restored to have a place in the kingdom of God. Even as a Moabite woman, she's given a husband and children, um, the two things that brought standing in that day. Naomi is restored to having a family line and is cared for um, as a widow of Israel is supposed to be cared for. Rahab is restored from a life of selling herself into a life of protection, provision, and great lineage. Tamar, still a sad story. She does, however, find a new beginning and starts this lineage of persistent women um, that lead to Mary. If you had a read on in Matthew 1, Mary is another woman that's mentioned in, the, in, in Matthew's lineage. Mary, the mother of the Christ child, pregnant before marriage and not with her husband's baby. Don't ever gloss over the fact that she was subject to immense shame um, because of her persistence to maintain, no, this is God's child, and Joseph's persistence to stay with her. 
Still, she knew what she was doing was right in the eyes of God, and she persisted. And it's a sad story that eventually gives way to a new beginning for all of us. And I don't need to downplay Boaz's role, because Boaz's role is very important um, in the story of Ruth. Um, Boaz responds to God's call. It's a, it's, to be a restored person, you must be in the process of restoring others. Boaz didn't need to marry Ruth. She was a Moabite. She was someone else's responsibility, but he does so because he's restored. And he believes in restoration, I think. And he believes in bringing the people of God to a place of standing in society. So when I look at the story of Ruth, I see two examples of how we can live out our identity as restored people. One is we restore justice. Like these women, we persist against injustice. We fight for those whose rights have been stripped, who are treated unfairly, who are called names, who are denied access to society. And if the world wants to call you a nag, then so be it. Because you know that you are schooling the world and what it means to live God's way. To let God's justice come and for God's people to continue to be restored. The second way um, is to restore others. Like Boaz, when the opportunity is given to us, we restore someone back to their place in society to bring them out of all the margins, and we do that. Recalling that we were once on the margins ourselves. We never forget that we are restored people. And as restored people, we are part of God's plan for restoring the world. Both of these characters are ones who practice restoration in some form, and I think the characters in the story of Ruth, the persistent widow, um, they're the ones that are the restorers, the heroes of this story. Um, in a story that we now find ourselves playing prominent roles. And I'd be willing to bet that in your life right now, um, you have an opportunity to either persist in some fight for justice or to help someone be restored to society. So today, I, I just want to end with a question for you to think about. What does it mean in your life to be a person of restoration?